You're listening to Stand Out with Ian O'Connell. Wednesday evenings from 8pm here on Radio Kerry. I'm delighted to say that my guest this week is adaptive adventurer, motivation and mental health speaker, Nikki Bradley. Diagnosed with a rare form of bone cancer at 16 and a receiver of a second hip transplant at the age of 26, Nikki has been on a truly unique journey. I hope you enjoy the show. Do you want to give a quick background on your own, say, growing up, just for, for listeners, just to give a, a quick background on what your life was growing up? Sure. So I am actually originally from Dublin, um, but I moved up to Donegal with my family. Um, I think it's over 20 years now. Oh, my God. And I was very normal student, um, very normal teenager, had, um, you know, had lots of different kind of activities going on and, and pastimes that I enjoyed. And then when I was 16, um, overnight, similar to yourself, I imagine overnight, everything changed. Um, I went from being just a normal girl to having cancer. And from then until now, I suppose everything that everything that happens to a normal person as they grow up happened differently for me as a result of the effects caused by by my treatment. So yeah, it's been it's been an unusual life, but I I wouldn't change it for the world. I've I've had I've had some incredible opportunities as a result and met some amazing people. So yeah, I can't really complain. <laughs> I am um, I seen I was watching an interview on there a few weeks ago. I think it was on um the TED Talks, but there was a there was a girl, was her name Sarah Doherty, you you talked about. Did you um yeah. did you look up, did she help you when you when you were first diagnosed and was she kind of someone that you looked at her story? Well, actually, Sarah came into my life later on. So Sarah Darty is she even though she sounds Irish, she's not. She lives in Canada with her partner. Um, she became an amputee um, after uh, I think it might have been a hit and run. Um, so again, her life changed overnight and she eventually went on to set up a company called Sidesticks with her husband. Side sticks are the crutches that I use that have allowed me to do every single one of the challenges that I've undertaken. And if it wasn't for the crutches, I wouldn't have been able to do them. There's absolutely no doubt about it. So I found Sarah hugely inspiring. Um, you know, some of the things that she's done, I still aspire to do. For example, she's climbed the Matterhorn as an amputee with her crutches. She has done numerous different incredible endurance um, events and has done so all while having only one leg and when I say one leg I don't mean you know when you think of an amputee you're usually maybe below the knee or something she lost yeah. her entire leg so she's had a huge struggle and um, just getting through daily life but it didn't let her stop her so um I just I found her so helpful in many ways not just because I find her story incredible but also thanks to her and what she came up with I have been able to get around looking quite cool with my crutches because they are pretty cool looking um so yeah she's she's one of those people that I, I'll never forget I think it's some it's important to to I suppose have someone like that in your life you know that you can you can relate to and that you can like yourself her um her achievements and the things she's done like you were saying you kind of look at her and you you aspire to do big things like that um you yourself in your store you've done a few um a few not a few I said you've done a good few um say 
challenges and obstacles and and things that some able-bodied people wouldn't be able to do and you don't know given your situation like climbing car and tool and stuff do you want to give me a a quick rundown on the, the things you've done mountains and stuff yeah, of course. So um, just to give a tiny bit of background as to why I do it, um, I set up a campaign called Fighting Fit for Ewings in 2013, and we based it around the physical challenges. So I wanted to use myself as kind of like the guinea pig. Um, I we, we very much said, like, we'll try a few things and we'll just see what kind of to see what the human body can do when it's differently abled. And if you have the right mindset, you know, all this type of thing, let's just see what we can do. And I very much set it up thinking if I, if, if I can't do something that that's okay too, that it wasn't a case of if I, if I don't get to the top of whatever mountain that it's a failure. Um, and actually one of the mountains I didn't get to the top of was Brandon um, in County Kerry, one of the most beautiful mountains. And I had to just call it and say, you know what, I'm happy with where I got to. Um, and that remains a challenge that has to, that has to be completed eventually. So it just goes back on the bucket list. Um, but yeah, so some of the, the challenges that we've done through the campaign, um, we've climbed numerous mountains in Ireland. Um, you mentioned Karen Tugel. We did that as part of the Four Peaks Challenge in 2018. Only five so miles from my house. Oh, is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Only oh my God. Five. Your view must be amazing. But it was uh, the, the views at the top of Karen Tugel's absolutely stunning. Yeah. Um, yeah. But because it's so far away, couldn't be further away from where I live in Donegal. So we weren't able to, you know, if, if I had have been as close to where you are to it, I, I possibly could have done more training. But we had to kind of just hope for the best. We did one climb of it beforehand. And then the second time I ever climbed it was the day of the challenge. So there was a bit of pressure there, but we got got through it. It was it was beautiful. Um, and we did Croke Patrick, Sleeve Donard and County Down. And then we finished here in Donegal with Mount Errigal. That was done in 32 hours climbing through the night. It was the first challenge I've done where basically we didn't really sleep. We just got into our vehicles and drove from one mountain to the next. And as soon as we got there, we just had our gear already on and just ready to go. So there was a lot of there was a lot of self-reflection during that particular one. But it was it was so much fun. It really was. It was incredible. Some of the other challenges, I've scaled a route of the Sol Hamiokal Glacier in Iceland. I completed the Fan Dance in Wales, which is still one of my best or one of my favourite challenges to date. That was a 24-kilometre trek through the Brecon Beacons in Wales, um, and it's organised by the British Special Forces. So you can imagine it's not the easiest challenge, um, and they're very strict. You know, their rules and all of that, like if you don't follow them, you're out, um, which I loved. I love that, like, you know you have to basically go by what they say and it's all down to health and safety. It's nothing to do with ego. It's just, you know, if you're not wearing the right gear, then don't bother turning up on the day. And I just, I loved that way of thinking that, you know, it kind of reminded me that we can set goals for ourselves and ego can get in the way and we can just think, do you know what? I'll do whatever I want. I can do this, that and the other. And you, you sometimes throw caution out the window. Whereas with that particular challenge, you were reminded of, of what you were doing every step of the way. And therefore, when you got to the end and when you completed the challenge, that sense of achievement was all the greater as a result. So that was just amazing. Um, what else have I done? Done um, numerous. I, I did a half marathon. Uh, we did some trekking in Africa. I did an obstacle course race in Holland, uh, which was so much fun, like way harder than I thought it would be that I just thought that would be like a big playground and we would just go around having fun. Absolutely wasn't. It <laughs> nearly killed me. 
Um, and yeah, we've done some big and small challenges in between. Um, and I can't wait now after the surgery to get back on the road to basically the big challenge that I have planned for myself is Kilimanjaro. It was meant to happen two years ago, but unfortunately, because of the pandemic, we had to hold off. So that definitely is is up there as the number one on the list for afterwards. So amazing. Unbelievable. Um, the amount of things you mentioned there. There's what I want to do before, I suppose, in the next few years. I, I was supposed to be doing it last year, but I I wasn't able to with COVID as I wanted dying to do a skydive. I am um, one of my friends in America. We just got talking. He's the same injuries as me, but um, it was always his dream to do one. And after his accident, he done one. So that's definitely that's definitely on, on my bucket list. Um, I suppose when you were when you when at the start when before things kind of when you got diagnosed and stuff, I remember reading somewhere that was that you were studying in in your kitchen and you kind of felt a pain in your hip. Would I be right? Was that the was that the kind of start of when when things when you found out really what's wrong? Well, actually, that was when so I'd already had cancer and come out the other side at that stage. So um, in the, the time you're referring to was in 2006 um, and I had my tumour in 2002. So I'd come out the other side, had my treatment and actually gone back to um, school like as an adult. I had had to leave school immediately when I was diagnosed, so I didn't have my leaving certificate. Um, and one of the big things that I wanted to be able to at least attempt was to finish my education. Because, um, as you know, like it's really important um, for, for your future. Um, so I was sitting at the table studying for the leaving certificate and I'd done the mocks. So we were we were only about a month away from the leaving certificate. And I felt, as you say, I felt a twinge in my hip. Um, and it the best way to describe it was it felt like I needed to stretch. Like if you've been sitting down for too long and you get a little pain, and you just want to stand up for a second. That's how I felt. So I stood up and tried to stretch out the pain. And as the day wore on, the pain increased. And by that evening, I was in A&E on morphine. Um, and long story short, that entire year was easily the worst pain I've ever experienced. It was absolutely awful. I spent three, two months, just over two months in St. Vincent's Hospital. Um, and eventually... I ended up having my first hip replacement. So the reason I was experiencing that level of pain was when they removed the tumor, they had to cut through um, nerves and muscle. And I was left with chronic nerve damage as a result. And the radiotherapy that I received for 20 minutes a day for six weeks, very short amount of time in the grand scheme of things, um, actually destroyed the bone in my hip. So that the radiotherapy was the key the key ingredient to my my hips downfall, um, shall we say. So I had my first hip replacement in 20, 2007. And the day after, I'll never forget waking up after surgery and that pain was gone. Now I had post-operative pain. I, I was in pain, but the other pain was gone. And I would take post-operative pain any day over what I'd experienced the year before. So after that, I spent a couple of years Again, I, you know, there was rehab and there was everything that goes along with major surgery and I still hadn't managed to do my leaving certificate. So this was like, I, I ended up going back to adult education for the third time. So like you can imagine going through the nightmare of going through the leaving once is bad enough. I was on my third time trying to learn the same stuff. So we eventually got, I, I eventually ended up in university in Galway. And unfortunately, I had another major setback. 
the hip replacement that I had had in 2007 became massively infected. And a couple of years later, um, it was actually 2012 that I had the hip taken out and replaced. So as as at the moment, I have had two total right hip replacements. Um, so yeah, <laughs> it's been it's been a fun journey. <laughs> yes, that's a crazy amount of of um. I know I know myself. Like you said, when I severed my spinal cord, I I get um nerve pain, but like it's obviously nothing compared to to what you're experiencing. Like I remember. I remember at the start when even somebody walked past my bed, like the breeze would kill my my arms and feet. It's 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 crazy the way the the nervous system works. Um, I remember I reading about you. It's um it's it's it really is like nerve pain is something that unless you've experienced it, it's very difficult to describe it. And because on the outside you don't look any different, it's really hard to even have people believe that it's as bad as you're saying it is. And then there's the, you start doubting whether it's, it's as bad as, as you think it is. Um, so, that, you know, like, you know, I can, I can relate to what you're saying, but at the same time, having a breeze affect me, that actually sounds worse than what I had. So, yeah. Did you, I know myself, I am, I, after my accident, when the word disability used to, used to be said to me, um, I I don't know from the start I just didn't like the word disability I always used to say um I'm able-bodied with limitations would you be that kind of person with that word would you consider yourself with a disability like would you would you consider your situation a disability in one way yeah um well I exactly like yourself when I I think after my first hip replacement um so my situation was it was it took so long for me to i suppose be considered disabled that i i i did i definitely struggled with the word i hated it if i'm honest i always felt that it was a word that you know if it was described about you it was people saying that you can't do things um and that it was always it was always associated with with limitations so I, I, the only problem is I always struggle to find a word to replace it. So like the, there's times where I'd say differently abled. And then like when I refer to myself as an adventurer, I refer to myself as an adaptive adventurer. And that's because I need equipment to be able to do what a regular adaptive or a regular adventurer would be able to do. Um, but I think over time I have realized that it is just a word um, and that it's up to us how we you know, how we take that word on. So for me, I have no problem anymore with referring to myself as somebody with a disability. Um, And I'm trying to come at it from the other angle now and, you know, look at it as, you know, we see people like, I always use Ellen Keane, the Paralympic swimmer, as the best example of somebody that she says herself she has a disability, but she is one of the coolest people in Ireland, hands down. She's just so amazing. And yes, she was born with, part of her arm missing but that aside she's an absolutely incredible swimmer who just happens to have a disability um and she doesn't hide behind that word and I think that if if she, you know if it's good enough for her it's good enough for me so yeah I think that um I've grown to accept and and not mind the word I remember um Ellen Keane when she was on the late late show there I think it was 
when she came home from um, Tokyo, it was, she was saying something about about the word disability. And I remember Ryan Tuberty said something. She stopped him and she, she put it another way that like a disability he was saying he was saying a disability but she was kind of going at it from a different angle i always think like it's the same with anybody with say another thing i hate is when someone says like that person is down syndrome i always stop him and say he's not down syndrome he has down syndrome because i think if you say he is it's like you take away all the other things from him he's still a a normal person, he just has it. I am. Um, I don't know. That might just be me, but I always look at it that way. Did um, did, did the whole experience going through all what you've went through and stuff? Did it have a toll on your mental health at any time? It did. You know, there were times when I there's one particular time I hadn't I hadn't thought that I needed counselling up until this point, and I remember going to work. And it was just a normal day and I was going to work. I woke up feeling a little bit like down. I would, I suppose that's the best way to describe it. I didn't feel overly, you know, I didn't feel depressed. I didn't feel, it wasn't an over the top feeling. However, as the day went on, the the feeling grew. By the time that I was due to go to work at 5 p.m. And by the time that time rolled around, something had just clicked. It was like literally like a light bulb. I, I couldn't go into work. I was sitting on my bed, bawling, crying. And I knew there and then I was like, there's something wrong. And I think basically what had happened was that it's not that I was pushing all, you know, the experiences that I'd had to go through away or pushing them down. I had dealt with them over time, but I dealt with them myself and with my family. And every time I'd shared a problem with my family, I basically, as far as I was concerned, I'd just given them the problem So when you share something, especially like similar to yourself, when you've gone through something that big, the problems that you're sharing are huge. They're not just little silly things that happened at work or whatever. These are big issues that you're sharing. So you walk away feeling a little bit lighter after the conversation, but they walk away feeling heavier because they're your loved ones and they then know what you're actually feeling. So what ends up happening there is you just you just eventually feel so guilty for passing that on. So the day that I had my, I'm not going to call it a breakdown, it definitely wasn't that, but the day I had my my moment of realisation, I basically realised that I needed to speak to a professional because these people are paid to listen, but they then go home to their own families and forget all about you. And that's what you need. You need them to be there for you in that moment, but then go on and live their lives. So then you can completely offload everything guilt-free. Um, so once I signed up to a few counseling sessions um, that changed everything I didn't need it all the time I think that in that particular period of time I went about maybe five times and then I didn't need to go for years afterwards um, and after that then if I ever needed to speak to somebody I just made an appointment and I didn't allow any type of stigma that can sometimes be attached to speaking to a professional stop me because why why should it you know when you need to speak to someone then just go and do it and then move on so it's really helped. No, I definitely agree with you there. And my show on Radio Kerry, like for this interview, I, I always try and bring mental health into whoever I'm interviewing because whether it be somebody like yourself or a sports there, everybody has been affected by it in some way or another. Like I, I try, like you said, there is a stigma around it and it's something that it needs to be talked about more and counseling when I was in rehab 
when they were offering me counselling, I kept I kept refusing and I kept saying, no, I'm grand, I'm grand. Whereas I, I, I knew I was grand, but then they kind of started to annoy me asking. And then I said, one day, yeah, I'll go. And when I went there, it was just like a weight taken off my shoulders. I don't know what it was. It's not like we didn't even talk about problems. It was just chatting to somebody. It just, um, it definitely helps. So there is a stigma yeah. around it, but like you said, it's nothing to be, nothing to be ashamed of or anything. Um, your friends had have been supportive all through your treatment and stuff, and you you said that they're 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 still there today. How important is it to to have people around you and like friends and family while you're going through tough times? Honestly, it is. If it wasn't for the people around me, I wouldn't be I wouldn't be able to do any of the stuff that I do. They are the key. Just to, I don't know, I can't even describe how important they are to me. They're absolutely everything. Um, the friends that I had the day I was diagnosed are still the same friends I have today. Uh, 20 years later, they're still the same best friends I have. Like our our WhatsApp group still contains the exact same people. That's, I don't even know, WhatsApp wasn't even a thing when I was at school. Um, but they're the, the same people. And I was actually just chatting to them this morning. So I am scheduled for surgery on the 7th of February over in Birmingham and I was saying to them that I'm being super careful at the moment because I'm terrified. I've been lucky enough that I've escaped COVID for two years, but I'm absolutely terrified of getting it now in the next two weeks, which will then obviously delay my operation. So I'm not having um, you know, anybody over to the house, but I really want to see them. So we've arranged to meet um, down in one of the, the many beautiful beaches that we have here in Donegal beforehand. And we'll have socially distanced meet and a, a nice walk and it'll be it'll be that same group from school that'll meet me on that day and that's the kind of thing like when I'm in hospital and things are are tough I'll remember that I'll remember the the fun that we'll have on that day and it really is I just can't express enough how important friendships and and staying in touch and making an effort with your family is as you will you will know yourself when when the chips are down they're the people you need exactly and I think it's it's when something bad happens, like like what you went through and the same as myself. It's only when you go through something like this, you're, you kind of realize who are the who are the people that stick around. And it's it's sad to, to know that you have to go through something like this to to find out who your real friends are. Like whenever people say, since your accident, have you lost friends? And I always say that I haven't lost friends. I've just found out who the real ones are. And it's yeah. it's vital that they're around you, like you said, going down to the beach now for a walk. If you're ever having a day that you're struggling, um, whether it be with your mental health or just not feeling, not feeling a hundred percent, what do you, is there anything that you you tend to do that kind of clears your head? Like for me, it's going out for a walk. Yeah, yeah. So in in normal times, like. I, I kind of have a plan for what, what way I'll get through my time in hospital coming up. But for normal times, the first thing I always do is just drop one of one of the, the people in my group a message. Um, but the other thing is I, I try not to dwell on things for too long um, because I think that if you allow yourself to think about a problem indefinitely, it, it turns into a, a situation that is, you know, bigger than it needs to be. Yeah. Um, and I like you know, with work and with, with different things, those distractions are really important. Um, I'm not saying don't acknowledge the problem, give it the time it needs, but then move on. 
you know, allow yourself to, to go on to something else. One thing I actually really struggled with um, in the lead up to, to this surgery is the fact that I gave up work in middle the middle of December and I ended up giving up work a little bit early. I thought I was going to be having surgery sooner. And I found that not having that distraction allowed too many thoughts to kind of swirl around in my head. And because I didn't get a date for surgery up until Friday, just gone, that weight just felt like forever. Um, it, and because I didn't have those distractions, it, it definitely felt more difficult. So yeah, to answer your question, having people around you um, and not dwelling is probably the best way to, to get through those things. Yeah, definitely, 100%. Um, something that I wanted to, to ask you was, I heard it in, a few interviews that you done is the was it in the Netherlands you went for the the world record? Um, yeah. Do you want to tell me a bit about that? I know it must still drive you mad to this day. <laughs> yeah, well, it was there was so much more to that story apart from not getting the world record. But um, so I I I applied to Guinness back in I think it might have been twenty sixteen. Um, I found, so whenever I found out that I was going to be on crutches for the rest of my life, I wanted to do something cool with that knowledge. And if, you know, if I was going to be on them forever, then I wanted to be, you know, maybe the fastest or the whatever. I just wanted to find a way to kind of celebrate the fact that I was going to be on them. So I went on to Guinness's website and found that there was a record called the fastest 5K on crutches in the female category. Um, and 5k is not it's not the biggest distance in the world but especially back then it wasn't I wasn't doing 5k's in any way regularly um, and also it one of the rules was that it had to be on one leg so if you happen to be an amputee then obviously you know you're used to it but in my case I still had both both legs so one of them had to be tied to the other so that was one of the rules so in terms of training it was quite difficult to actually to get the momentum going to get you know to, to be able to go fast with one leg tied to the other it it, it felt very different just unusual so there's a bit of a learning curve around that um but one of the, the strangest things happened around that record was that I found um an, uh, an athlete online called Michael Robert Brands who's based in Holland um and he had he'd had can had cancer three times throughout his his life and eventually lost his full leg right up to the hip um, and I found him, I just did a quick search and found him and just found him on Instagram, started following him, thought he was really inspirational. He was big into CrossFit and he would do like box jumps with his one leg and just the, he was doing these really cool things. So outside of the Guinness World Record, I'd been following his his progress anyway. And one day I happened to notice the Guinness logo um, the Guinness World Record logo on his page and I read the attached um, piece that he had with it and he basically was telling his followers that he had applied for the fastest 5k on crutches in the male category and it had been his application had been accepted um, and I just thought that the coincidence was unbelievable I'd never spoken to him at this point I literally just had been following his progress the fact that we both applied for the exact same world record not knowing each other not knowing anything um was unbelievable so I dropped him a message um and we ended up having a call and eventually long story short we ended up doing our record attempts together in Holland um unfortunately for me I he got his world record he smashed the time and he's to this day I think still the the, the record holder for that category but for me the the time I was told to beat was 49 minutes 53 seconds which is 
obviously a long time for a 5k um but it's still as i said with it with all the rules in place it, it takes takes a long time blah 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 but, if one leg hit the ground would you be disqualified yeah so that was that was my biggest fear that if my if my toes on my my the leg that was strapped to the other leg even grazed the ground i would have been immediately disqualified so we had a full team of people it was filmed we we had somebody running behind me to make sure that my foot didn't touch the ground um and as soon as we as soon as i took off to to start the 5k the kind of the the what did we use it was like a it was kind of like a big bandage we used to wrap one leg to the other but as soon as i started moving my foot slipped out of it so for the from the very first second of the 5k i was in danger of my foot touching the ground so that's all i could think about which was it, it made for a very long time but got through it anyway i did it in 44 minutes 21 seconds and was delighted with myself as far as i was concerned i'd smashed the the old time um, I went back to Ireland and submitted all my evidence. And then I received news that the website had been updated. So when I, when I went into the category that I'd um, applied for, I seen that there was a girl in America was now the, the newest world record holder. Um, and she'd done it in 44 minutes, 20 seconds. But she'd done it like three months. She'd done it three months before me. Um, but because obviously Guinness just didn't update their records as quickly as they should. So the time I was given and the official time by, by them that I was given was actually incorrect. Um, and the fact that I did one minute slower, you know, if I had have just sped up a little bit, if obviously, you know, this is the magic of hindsight. I didn't know this at the time, but if I had have sped up a tiny bit, I would have beat that new record. So it was, it's kind of bittersweet. However, what I always say about that story is that, what came out of that was meeting Michael. I got to go over to Holland, go over to stay with his family and meet the people that are around him and the people that support him. And the difference that it made was unreal. And I knew that I'd eventually probably face some form of amputation in the future. And after meeting him and getting to know him, um, the first person, so the surgery that I will be having in two weeks time is, is an amputation. Um, and really? when I found out this news, first person I had a zoom call with was Michael um and you know yes I don't have the, the certificate from Guinness on my wall but what I have instead is an amazing Memories. yeah exactly so so it's all good social media <laughs> social media can be a, a horrible thing with trolls and stuff but the likes of your story there you got to meet him and it's things like that that social media is great for and there is so much bad on social media, but there's good things that come over as well, like like the the story the story you just said. Um, before your before you were diagnosed and before your I suppose unique story began, were you when you were growing up? Were you were you always kind of interested in the outdoors, and did you always have that kind of bulletproof mindset? Um. I did like the outdoors and in terms of, say, any type of sport, I loved gymnastics when I was much younger and when I was part of the gymnastics team when I was younger. But by the time I was diagnosed, I was I was a teenager. I was I'm just going to admit it. I was I was going through a lazy phase, shall we say. Um, I was much more interested in watching TV than I was in going outside at all. Um, and I know I don't know what would have happened had I not have been diagnosed um you know I probably would have grown up and and discovered the outdoors anyway but I definitely hold you know 
my my love for the outdoors definitely came from being sick yeah. and everything I learned throughout all of that and the people that I met um and and just appreciating what I had um and that you know and once I once I tried one or two things outdoors did some just basic hiking I just I just appreciated how beautiful my surroundings were and how simple it was it didn't cost anything to get there like you just, you know petrol money that's it you don't have to pay to to climb a mountain you just go um, and I loved the simplicity in that um, and the views at the top. So, yeah, it, it kind of just evolved um, after my illness. That's, um, I think a lot of people found out their their surrounding areas that they hadn't even been before during COVID when they were on their two kilometre walks and stuff. Yeah. Um, I suppose one of the, the last questions I, I wanted to ask you was during COVID with say I don't know if you go to the gym or anything when gyms were closed or if you were supposed to be having treatment did um did you kind of notice any deterioration in your say in your leg or did you go to the gym before COVID? Yeah so actually the pandemic was the everything shutting down was um one of the main things that pushed the surgery that I'm about to have forward um, my pain went through the roof very quickly I remember April 2020 um, I, I live in the country and because the gyms were closed and you know all of the facilities that I had been utilizing before were closed I was lucky enough that I had a big field behind my house so I was doing myself and my mum were doing laps of that um, and as much as it was helping a little bit, it wasn't helping enough. And it was also a different type of exercise that I've been doing before. And I, I didn't realize how important the routine that I built up before was until it was taken away. The first thing that, no, that I noticed was that the pain in my back had increased. Um, so I eventually had to have steroid injections in my back. There were disc issues and various things happening there. And then as soon as my back would ease off, pain in my hip would flare up and it was it just became a a vicious seesaw of back hip and um back pain and hip pain and it was just going over and back um so I eventually saw a specialist who said that the back pain was secondary um until I fixed fixed the problem in my hip back pain wasn't going to go away in fact it was going to get worse so to answer your question, the pandemic had a huge impact on on me and I haven't actually come out of it since the pain is still where it was then. Thankfully, the back pain has eased a good bit, but the hip pain hasn't. And that's what's led to what I'm about to face now in a couple of weeks. The, just before you go, I wanted to, are you uh, are you one for, say, I know I'm the, I'd be the kind of person like January now I set goals for the year and I don't know some like last year my goal was to push myself in a wheelchair myself and that didn't happen and I've done it again this year so that's my my goal would you be one for for setting goals long-term goals and would you would you be or would you be the kind of person for short-term goals like would you have any goals set for this year now would you be one for setting goals yeah so I I do both. Um, I think that like with long term goals, the only way you're going to achieve them is by setting short term goals. So within so like I mentioned that I really want to do Kilimanjaro, but I'm not going to just wake up in three months time and get on an airplane and go to do Kilimanjaro. There's going to be a huge amount of small goals 
needed um, and certainly they'll need to be achieved and achieved well before I would even consider Kilimanjaro. Um, and that's been the same with whether it's an adventure or whether it's with even work. Um, one of the, the things I struggled with most before I set up my campaign was having a lack of focus. I felt that I was just moseying along and I just I didn't have enough goals. And the feeling that that left me with was it was one that I didn't want. So when I when I set up a few different big and small goals, I instantly had a focus. And once I had that, then everything just became so much easier. The work that was needed to achieve them didn't feel like work. It just felt like part of what I had to do. Um, and thankfully, I've kept that mindset since. So that was in 2013. And I'm still thinking the same way now, even down to um, I found out yesterday that because of COVID, I won't be able to most likely won't be able to have visitors the whole time I'm over in Birmingham having my surgery. So I'm going to be there for at least two weeks. And as I said, I'm having my leg amputated. It's actually called a rotation plasty. So my lower leg will be brought up and rotated um, and my knee joint will become my hip joint. Um, for your listeners, I would just recommend you maybe Google it. It's very difficult to actually describe. It's going to be it's probably going to be the toughest operation I've ever had. Um, and it's going to be really difficult to find out yesterday that I'm most likely not going to have any of my loved ones with me the entire time I'm in there was really difficult to get my head around. But if that is the case, if we can't get past that rule, then how I'll get through the couple of weeks is by setting tiny micro goals while in hospital. Now, it's got to be nothing like fancy. It's literally going to be get up wake up at a certain time, you know, do do a bit of work on the laptop, bring certain books, make sure I'm reading them, make basically make sure I'm keeping my mind active and that I'm not just sitting there feeling sorry for myself. You um, can't beat so routine, so you can't. It's so important. Um, and like, it, you know, I don't think anybody would begrudge me if I just threw routine out the window for the next few weeks, but it's, you're not doing yourself any good by doing that because when I come home, it's going to be harder to get into routine then. So by keeping that while I'm over there, it'll make such a difference. So, um, Last question. Um, if you had to give any, say, any advice to somebody going through treatment now that, that's maybe struggling and in a bad place going through um, treatment or that's just been diagnosed, if you were to say something to them, what would be your, your advice? My advice would be, and we, we touched on social media, my advice would be find somebody, doesn't matter where in the world, find somebody that has what you have and read their posts because that is the single biggest help. To, it has been the single biggest help to me from day one that I had access to the internet. Um, like finding Michael in Holland when I found out about the rotation plasty because it's so rare I couldn't actually find anybody anywhere near me but I found an amazing girl called Jessica Quinn in New Zealand who has had the same surgery and she was on Dancing with the Stars she had a really cool black blade that just actually looked amazing and um, while she was dancing she's doing amazing things but her posts are so useful to me she puts up little videos of how she gets in and out of bed how she you know, gets from A to B. And for a lot of her followers, they won't be able to relate to that. But for me, I read every single one of them and what it meant 
it basically just it has prepared me for this surgery that one person that I'll probably never meet she's in New Zealand like the chance of me meeting her is very slim but what she's been able to do for me she'll never you know she'll never know how much she's helped me so if, if somebody that's listening to this today is going through any type of treatment whether it's you know a treatment caused by an illness whether it's a mental health um issue whatever it is find somebody that has what you have because they are the people that will help you the most um and reach out to them even if they don't reply that's that's their loss but reach out to them um because you never know i did that with michael and look at look at what ended up happening there exactly um we might even break a record two of us someday <laughs> um we'll thanks so much. together definitely Thanks so much for um, coming on, Nikki. And again, congratulations on the, the engagement and all Thank the you. best, all the best in um in two weeks' time because you've been through a lot, and I know that you'll you, you'll get through this just as as well as you have the other one. So you have a phenomenal story, and thanks for thanks for sharing it today. Now, unfortunately, that's all we have time for tonight. I hope you all enjoyed the show and I really appreciate you all tuning in over the last couple of weeks. If you have any suggestions, questions or requests, you can get in contact with me through my email address ioconnell at radiocarry.ie. I will be back at the same time next week from 8 to 9pm. Until then, stay safe and mind yourself. You're listening to Stand Out with Ian O'Connell. Wednesday evenings from 8pm here on Radio Kerry.